If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know that I like to treat my guests with respect, indeed deference to their considerable expertise. When I question, it's to clarify, not to challenge. But what happens when someone who has publicly referred to social mobility as a stupid and damaging policy goal, that's me, Meet someone who's written an authoritative and passionate defence of the meritocratic ideal. That's my guest today. To find out, you'll need to stay tuned to the latest edition of Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm joined by journalist, writer, public intellectual, Adrian Waldridge, whose latest book is The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Hi, Adrian, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your programme. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And because because we disagree, I think, maybe not quite as much as, as our starting points might suggest, I want to get into some of these kind of elements of of difference. But before we do that, to make sure that people understand about the book, because it's a wonderful book, I loved reading, just tell us the core argument of the aristocracy of talent, Adrian. Well, the aristocracy of talent essentially argues that the essence of the modern world is meritocracy. Meritocracy is as much part of the fundamental definition of modernity as democracy, capitalism, egalitarianism in its broadest sense. It argues that the modern world was essentially created by three revolutions, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the British Liberal Revolution of the 19th century, the Gladstonian Revolution, all of which had the aim not of creating an equal society, not of creating a democratic society, but essentially of creating a society in which rule and power was taken away from the aristocratic elite, whose position was based on land, and given over to the aristocracy of talent. And so the aristocracy of talent is the sort of the central organizing principle of modernity. And although it sits not necessarily very easily with the other modern commitment to equality and democracy, it's something that's constantly pulling it, something that's constantly in tension with it, and is shaping the world all around the world. Now, probably meritocracy is the one idea that is shared in common by China, and the United States, and indeed the the European Union. One of the things that gave me pause for thought in the book as someone who's quite critical of the kind of meritocratic ideal was just to be reminded of how radical that idea has been uh, throughout history. And, and as you point out, often people on the left saw that ideal as being the kind of driving force for them, which makes it all the more interesting that the modern left has become ambivalent, indeed, in some ways, kind of quite hostile to the idea. So let's get into some of these kind of critiques of meritocracy. So I guess the first one is that one thing I was surprised you didn't talk about in the book, and of course, your book is about meritocracy, not social mobility, although they're incredibly related concepts, is that when we talk about the golden age of meritocracy, and you write about this, those post-war decades, those were also, as well as being decades where we saw a lot of people rise up the kind of social ladder, they were also decades of, on the one hand, relatively low social inequality, and on the other, a fast expanding middle class. So what was happening 
in those post-war eras was less relative social mobility, that is to say people moving up and down, and more absolute social mobility, that was to say mainly people moving up into expanding middle class. Now, we won't be able to pull off that second trick again, will we? We won't, if we want to achieve a more meritocratic society, we aren't going to be able to do it by a massive expansion in the middle class. I'm not certain about that, actually. I mean, I think there is a there is a widespread assumption that the years after the Second World War were very peculiar in the sense that the number of white-collar jobs was expanding. So the number of people who moved out of blue-collar jobs into white-collar jobs was necessarily very high. It was a structural change in the economy. And there's a sort of sense now that the economy has settled down and that we're in a more, not just a more stagnant era in terms of economic growth, but a more settled era in terms of the the structure of society. First of all, I'm not sure that that's true. I think we're going through a period in which there is going to be an extraordinary degree of job creation and job destruction. So I don't think it's reasonable to make any very firm prediction about the future shape of society. And secondly, I think there's a sense in which the shape of society is not something that's just given to us from on high. It's something that we can actively will. It's something that we can actively shape by social policy. And the example I would give of this is Singapore. Singapore was a a manufacturing entrepot, very low value added manufacturing goods in in the 1950s and early 1960s. And by an act of uh, a very conscious social policy, it decided that it wanted to be a high value added service related knowledge economy. And because of Lee Kuan Yew's foresightedness, and determination, it became such. It it changed the nature of its own social structure. So the position that we choose to occupy in the sort of the the global value chain is is, is not predetermined. It's something that we can will through social policy. And I think that Britain has a very successful science sector. It has a very successful service and knowledge economy sector, as well as having a large low value added service Economies. So I think that the social structure is not fixed. I think it's possible that we could have another expansion of the knowledge economy. Even though you know, there are obviously differences in people's estimates as to the impact of technological change, but generally I'd say the consensus is that we'll see a hollowing out of jobs in the middle, that the future is in high-paid, tech-related jobs or jobs which are creative and therefore there's a a lot of human capital in them. And at the bottom end, service jobs, everything from security guards to hairdressers, which probably aren't going to get paid terribly well. And it's the middle that's going to go, the middle bit of the ladder that's going to go. So you think that's too pessimistic a perspective? I think it is too pessimistic. I mean, it's too fatalistic. I do think that it's within the it's in the hands to some extent of policymakers to shape the sort of economy that we want. I think the future does lie in knowledge related jobs, high value added knowledge related jobs. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate and advocate of meritocracy is that I think that if we had truly meritocratic policies and we were truly serious about sifting the population for talent and making the best possible use we can of talent, we could have a much more knowledge-intensive economy in which the number of knowledge-intensive jobs is much larger than we have at the moment. So I want to come back to this idea of knowledge intensity later on because I, I sensed a kind of tension in the argument, but put that to one side for a moment. In the final chapter of the book, 
And by the way, I should say we're going to talk mainly now about some of the kind of policy challenges and questions and future of meritocracy. But the book is an incredibly rich historical survey of this idea of meritocracy from, you know, Plato right through to the post-warrior. It's one of the, the reasons the book's so fascinating. But in that final chapter, you have a number of radical ideas about what you would have to do if you wanted to pursue that meritocratic ideal, to, to recreate the possibility of a kind of meritocratic step forward. You talk about forcing independent schools to take half their pupils on merit alone, or expanding early years education, expanding vocational education. You talk about the need for a moral renewal among the elites. But yet, you kind of recognize that these are challenging ideas, but but you don't say something which is actually just a little simpler than this. And that is simply that meritocracy in a mature democracy can only succeed if overall inequality is modest. That is to say, there is a very strong and inherent connection between the overall level of inequality in a society and the likelihood of that society also being one which exhibits reasonable levels of social mobility. There's a real tension here, and I think it's a very difficult tension, between equality of opportunity and economic efficiency, I think, much more than you're saying, that in order to have equality of opportunity, I think you need to have a fairly level playing field. I think it's impossible to have equality of opportunity if you have you know, to put it very crudely, if you have some people going down chimneys at the age of 11 and some people getting the best education in the world, you have to try and create a level playing field. However, I do think it's in the nature of particularly the modern knowledge intensive economy that a lot of great productivity gains are made by innovative individuals possessed of a very innovative view of the world. So if you think of the Silicon Valley revolution. It's essentially been made by, by a series of great entrepreneurs who have been captivated by the idea of making great fortunes. And by pursuing those ends, they have indeed generated a richer and more opportunity-laden world. I think of Bill Gates putting computers on everybody's desks. I think of well, Facebook, I don't have any particular interest in Facebook, but I think I think of Google providing people with enormous amounts of information at their, at their fingertips. So I think there's a real tension between the very inegalitarian nature of big productivity gains at the moment and the desire to provide everybody with a quality of opportunity. So I don't think any of these things are at all easy. But one of the things that you notice about, you think of Western Europe as, uh, as having now higher levels of social mobility than, than the United States and the European mainland having higher levels of social mobility than the more Anglo-Saxon Britain, which has tr tried to go down the American road. And that is true. But on the other hand, you don't have the massive creation of new wealth that you've seen in the United States and to a lesser extent Great Britain. You have more social mobility, but you have less creation of new companies and very innovative products. So that's there's a big tension between these two things. So the essence of my argument in my conclusion is that real meritocracy is something that's very difficult to create. It's very difficult to create because it pushes against certain elements of human nature, which is that we try and do the, the very best for our children. And it's very difficult to create because you have to grapple 
with you know this process of creative destruction which creates these huge fortunes for the very 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 successful that's why i i, I keep referring coming back to plato because he understood the difficulty of this and that's why i argue for a very interventionist policy on the part of the state to create meritocracy, but an interventionist policy that's driven not by egalitarianism or a notion of an equality of, of human capacities, but a, an interventionist policy that recognizes the inequality of human abilities. Yeah, and this is, I think this is the core of our disagreement, Adrian, because I, I believe that egalitarians are meritocrats who mean it. That is to say, that if you want a society that is meritocratic, you're first of all going to have to shift it in a pretty egalitarian direction. And I want to argue that not simply because, as, as, as you acknowledge, that countries which are less extremely unequal seem to have a slightly better record on social mobility, but that there are very obvious reasons why that would be the case. So the first is that the rungs in the ladder are less far apart in less unequal societies. Secondly, that the problem of meritocracy, the problem of social mobility is never about people going up. You know, one of the inane things that politicians do when they talk about social mobility is they always talk about people going up. They never talk about people coming down. And the problem is that we can all agree policies to help people go up. We are a long way away from agreeing policies which might make it a little more likely that people would come down. And again, I think as you acknowledge in the book, if you look at the expansion of higher education that's taken place in the UK, broadly speaking, a good thing. But actually, this has primarily been about less intelligent middle class people being guaranteed university places than bright working class people. There's been some of that, but but not to the extent that we, we might want. So one of the reasons that middle class people are so utterly resistant so the idea that they can't pass on privilege to their children is if you are in an unequal society, the idea of going down the ladder is terrifying. So, it, you know, countries like Britain and America, it is very, very grim not to be well off. But actually, in more equal societies, life is slightly more comfortable, even if you're in the bottom half of the kind of income distribution. And then finally, you know, as Robert Putnam argues in his book, our children, which is, you know, he makes this very poignant point, which is that, you know, when he was growing up, the notion of our kids meant the children of America, the children of the community, the children of the place. And now it has simply come to mean one's own children. And again, in unequal societies, that sense of being in it together has declined and you have a polarization which is associated with that. So in all these ways, I don't disagree with a huge amount in your book. I just want you to recognize a simple fact that you've got to have a more equal society if you're going to have a chance of one which can be more meritocratic. Well, <laughs> there's a lot there to answer to. One of the things I've noticed in, in talking to a lot of people about this book is that we were not that long ago in the middle of a huge revolt against the notion of meritocracy. We had books like Markowitz's The Meritocracy Trap, Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit, and a huge wave of people saying meritocracy is a bad aim. Now I've noticed that a lot of people are saying, like you are, that egalitarians are basically meritocrats who mean it. We don't really want to get rid of meritocracy. The question is about the means to a more meritocratic end. So I feel at least I've had some impact there in people rowing back a little bit from the, the full-scale denunciation of meritocracy as an end. And I mean by meritocracy, the idea that people are judged on the basis of their individual abilities 
and allocated opportunities which allow them to make the best of those individual abilities. My problem with your more egalitarian view of things is it does strike me that the nature of the modern economy, the knowledge economy, is such that the big productivity gains are made by exceptional individuals or exceptional groups of individuals looking for making exceptional fortunes out of very disruptive and innovative ideas. But do you think, Adrian, just to interrupt, do you think that they're really motivated by the next billion, the billion after that? I mean, I run an organisation. I'm on a salary that puts me easily in the top kind of 3% of income earners in the UK, which is a rich country. I have to say, and I don't think this is because I'm a particularly special person, I'm not motivated by earning any more money at all, really. I'm motivated by doing well in my job, by my status, by the sense of impact in the world. This idea that people are creative, innovative, want to solve problems in the world when they're already very comfortable by the idea of becoming even richer, I don't really know people like that. I mean, I know people, I have to say, I do know people like that who work in the city, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about the kind of people who are driven by a desire to to make something new, to create I something. Think it's, I think it has been the case that the great disruptive and wealth-creating periods of innovation, if you look at the rise of the oil and steel and automobile industries in the, the second half of the 19th century, or if you look at the rise of the silicon-based innovations of today, they all seem to be driven by entrepreneurs or groups of entrepreneurs seeking to create something. And a measure of that that creation of something new is overwhelmingly sort of corporate fortunes. The, the big exception is Tim Berners-Lee, I think. But I think that, you know, overwhelmingly, the modern tech revolution, which has made us all wealthier and has made us all capable of doing the most extraordinary range of things that we couldn't do before, such as doing what we're doing now, are made by people wanting innovation. And the problem with the the European economy is that it doesn't create new innovative companies. It has lots and lots of old established companies, but very few new innovative companies in the way that America does it. What I'm trying to grapple with in this book, or the subtext of this book, is how do we make this world of sudden disruptive fortunes more meritocratic. So if you look at America in the late 19th century, it was in danger of becoming a plutocracy because these great fortunes were becoming sort of, as it were, were being transmitted from generation to generation. They were becoming solidified. And so opportunities were being hoarded by a small group of people and their their families, a plutocratic elite, the Gilded Age and the rest of it. And America took very deliberate steps to reintroduce or to revivify the meritocratic ideal, which is the ideal of its republic, by creating a mass educational system, but also an educational system that was open to talent from below by purifying its political system in various ways, by trying to give power to to wise men, as it was then. Not very much talk of wise women rising to the top of administrative institutions anyway. And I think we need a similar thrust to take today's plutocracy and to push it in a more meritocratic direction by creating opportunities because plutocracies ultimately become sort of self-destructive because they don't draw on the full range of talent in the whole of the population. I think we need a similar, you know, we need to look back to the late 19th century in many ways to see where we need to go. Um, I wanted to just explore a little bit more uh, one thing that you were saying because it's very profound 
and very wise, if I may say so. And that is the problem of downward social mobility. Everybody thinks, everybody, most people think of meritocracy as upward social mobility. You must have downward social mobility as well, certainly for, for, for sort of positional goods, but also unless we can have a sort of renaissance in the knowledge economy for, you know, for structural reasons. And one of the problems with Britain and the United States is that there's enormous fear of downward social mobility in the United States because there's a very poorly organized safety net. And in Britain, I think for reasons of status as, as much as anything else. But I think if you look at Germany, very well-organized society, in, in my opinion. There's much less fear of what we in Britain would regard as downward social mobility because there's a much higher status applied to apprenticeships and technical schools and technical education. Here, we've managed to construct a funnel which is obsessed by one sort of success, academic success, funnel from, from school to university to professional jobs, and we haven't given either enough status or enough organizational heft to the technical side of the economy. I think that would be one way of dealing with the power of downward social mobility, but also economic growth, economic prosperity should to some extent deal with downward social mobility. I remember John Adam, I don't remember, I mean, I read that John Adams, the American president once said that I study war and politics so that my children can study the arts so that their grandchildren can study tapestry making and pottery and you know knitting and the rest of that sort of thing that the range of things that you can do that provide you with a satisfying life and a reasonable status should massively increase as society becomes becomes richer so the fear that we have of downward social mobility what we regard as downward social mobility is excessive in this country because we're not giving enough status to yoga teaching or enough status to working in a factory or working with your hands or working indeed in the caring professions. So my solution to these problems is not more quality, as is, I think is your, your solution. My solution is a greater diversity of ways of being successful. And of course, I agree entirely with you that we need, we need massive amounts of redistributive tax because if we have an excessive concentration of, of, of wealth in a privileged elite, that's bad for society. It's bad for the privileged elite, actually. Yeah, and look, Adrian, overall, as somebody who's spent a lot of my life trying to encourage the left and the centre to collaborate, the, the fact that we can agree about wanting to challenge plutocracy and then spend less time arguing about the the differences in our kind of relative merits of egalitarians versus meritocracy. Look, I'm with you on that. But let's turn to the argument you've just been talking about. So you you refer to David Goodhart's book, Head, Hand, Heart, and he appeared on this podcast some time ago. Now, I've got to be very careful when I talk about this because I made the terrible mistake, Adrian, of going on a an Australian podcast and talking about David's book and saying, of course, we give enormous status to work that is associated with our heads, but we give much less status to other kinds of jobs. And we really do need to do more to increase the status of hand jobs. That wasn't a particularly clever thing to say on an Australian podcast. They thought it was extremely amusing. So I shall avoid saying that. But you argue, as David Goodhart argues, that we ought to give higher status to heart work, which is caring work, essentially, and to 
manual work, uh, skilled manual work. Now, I guess my question here is, if this is one of the things that is required for us to have a, a meritocracy, so what we're saying here is we don't need you to have just one funnel, let's have lots and lots and lots of funnels. So there's lots and lots of things that you can be good at. I don't see any sign of that happening in society, really. And I also wonder, for you as somebody who broadly speaking supports a kind of free market economy, liberal market economy, how on earth in a market economy would you be able to change things so that we started giving a broader range of material reward to a different set of jobs? How would we get to a world in which caring jobs, for example, got anything like the kind of status or rewards associated with technology jobs or or city jobs? And then you too, Adrian, keep talking about the knowledge-intensive economy. Now, that seems to me to be a bit of a tension here because we haven't a knowledge-intensive economy. We're going to carry on in this world where we give more and more credit to intellectual work and caring and manual labours continue to be relegated. Sure. Uh, let me say absolutely to start off with that there are lots of tensions in this book, and this book is an attempt in many ways to grapple with these tensions, not always perhaps convincingly, but you know, there are tensions at the heart of modernity. You know, we're, we're, the whole business of public policy is about, is about trying to reconcile and make the best possible reconciliation of, of very real tensions. There's no world that doesn't have tensions, but I absolutely accept what you say about tensions. What I really want to do, I think, in dealing with this problem is to replace selection by elimination with selection by differentiation. So have several sort of hierarchies of reward or merit or conceptions of merit rather than just one. And I think that this has been a very long-standing problem in Britain that we've always tended to, to not quite fetishize, but to admire clean things, you know, things like uh, academic success, knowledge success, or disparage things that involve, you know, making things. That's a sort of a big structural problem with the way that Britain is organised and the way that it sees the world. I think the, the more peculiar evolution is actually the United States. The United States hasn't had that problem in the past. It's always had a notion that you need to have an ace in every suit, not just an ace in one suit. So you've had a big tradition of technical educations with MIT, Texas's A&M universities, agricultural and military, and all the rest of it, a notion of technical success or pure money-making success without any pretensions about academic purity being valued. And one of the strangest things that's happened in the United States in the last few decades is an enormous narrowing of this funnel, a notion that the only thing that really matters is, is cognitive success, intellectual success, academic success, and all of the other forms of success being disparaged or converted into a form of worship of cognitive success. So I think both America and Britain have real problems here for different historical reasons. But I would say that this isn't inevitable. Germany has preserved a tradition of high status for technical qualifications and manual skills. And it may be the, the fact that your problem of rewards for a different set of skills may be solved gradually by various market and policy pressures. I think of market pressures. I walk down Northcote Road in Clapham and I see this incredible range of you know, cheese shops and delis and things like that, quite often with very brightly educated 
middle-class people serving behind the counters and not looking you know, miserable or frustrated in this. And I see around me large numbers of people who are sort of making a living as yoga teachers or baking bread, or there is a, you know, because society has demands for all sorts of niche products, there is a way of making a living that doesn't just mean going to the city or selling your labor to giant corporations or things like that. So a prosperous society will be one in which a wider range of skills and a wider range of abilities is rewarded. You, you, you can see that in the flourishing art market or a flourishing restaurant market. When it comes to you saying that there's a tension between my belief in the market economy and my belief in you know, the state, absolutely there is a tension. I mean, I'm much less of a market purist than I was a few years ago. I think in order to have an effective market, you need to have effective state intervention, both through taxation to prevent fortunes from growing too big and becoming too decadent. But also, I think the meritocracy is a sort of necessary counterbalance to the market, because we constantly have to be intervening in order to provide something approximating to equality of opportunity, provide people who don't have rich or privileged parents with an opportunity to get the opportunities commensurate with their, with their talents. Um, so, you know, I think the market is very, very good at providing information about preferences. But what meritocracy is about, in my view, is about discovering hitherto hidden talents and making the best of them, particularly you know, with, with, with younger people. And so you know, when I say that I think that 50% of private school places should be, uh, as it were, taken over by the state and given on the basis of merit, I, that's a massive intervention in, in, in the market, but I think a wholly justified one. Well, let's go back to the Northcote Road for a second, because I often walk down the Northcote Road as well. And, and in fact, I grew up in this part of South London. And perhaps the other big difference in the Northcote Road is this. When I grew up, there were working class people who owned houses in the Northcote Road and the streets. Now, in what is called Nappy Valley, you won't get a house for less than a million quid. Now, isn't the other structural challenge for us here, Adrian, if we want a more meritocratic society? that what has happened in our country is that your life chances, your economic security are now much more a reflection of dead labour, that is to say wealth, capital, than living labour, which is to say income. That's the really big shift, and it's a big shift that affects our whole class structure and everything else. If we want a meritocratic society, a society that in a sense reflects the way in which people are here and now exercising their talents and efforts, we'll have to do something to address the fact that wealth has become such a massive component now of the level of people's economic security, won't we? Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I have a long chapter, and I, I think, you know, in some ways the most passionate chapter in the book about what I call the corruption of the meritocracy, which happened very much from the 1960s onwards, whereby a group of people who'd done very well out of the post-war settlement produced a sort of marriage between meritocracy and plutocracy. Uh, and part of this marriage between meritocracy and plutocracy has been driven by this huge revolution in house prices, that people who happened to do very well out of going to university in the 60s and 70s, got nice jobs in the professions, bought houses at the right time, have massively consolidated their position and the position of their children by the property price inflation. And until we do something about that 
you know, this wealth, as you say, dead capital, we're not going to have anything uh, approximating to a, a level playing field. I mean, this goes well beyond the, you know, what we do about this, this extraordinary asset price inflation it goes well beyond the bounds of this book. But it's certainly the case that the biggest danger to meritocracy is the marriage of meritocracy and plutocracy and the creation of a sort of hereditary elite whereby people with wealth and with houses pass on that wealth to their children, both in the form of better educations, either bought through the private sector or through very good comprehensive schools and getting their children to tutors and the rest of it, and also giving them the ability to stay you know, rent-free in London, where the knowledge economy is particularly thriving, and then ultimately passing on their houses to their children. And that is, that, that is a very fundamental threat to meritocracy. It's not, you know, it's not so much people who say meritocracy is a terrible idea. It's people who say meritocracy is a very good idea, but I also happen to have got lots of money and will do everything I can to make sure that my children get that money inherited from me. So that, that Adrian, takes me to the kind of final point I want to make. Your book had a big influence on me. I, I kept kind of putting it down and thinking about it and and questioning the fact that I have been pretty outspoken, actually, about my kind of critiquing of the of social mobility as a, as a concept. And I thought I should be a little bit more careful about that and a bit more respectful of those radicals in the past who have seen this goal as being one. And also that it is, as you say in the book, ultimately it is a goal, the goal of meritocracy, one that will unite centre and progressives together. However, in the end, you make a point in the book, you make it powerfully, which is the ethical case for meritocracy. And in the end, however, the reason I disagree is also an ethical argument. And that, in a sense, is that you and I agree that the conditions for humane meritocracy are demanding, and those conditions are currently remote. Yet, and this is a kind of, I think, you know, I particularly felt angry when I was listening to Nick Clegg and David Cameron setting up the Social Mobility Commission, banging on about this stuff. Yet the notion of meritocracy is used by the centre and right too often as a way of promising something or even claiming that we live in a meritocracy. And it seems to me to be used as a device to reject the need for redistribution or more profound change. So my ethical problem with meritocracy is not really with the ideal, but it's the way in which it is used by politicians to try to deflect from the fact that we have to address some of these deeper structural issues that you and I have discussed if we're going to have a society where meritocracy can be real. And sure. it's, so it's that, that that has led me to, to, to be as negative as I have been about it. Sure. I mean, I, th- I think there's a sense, your worry might be expressed in say, say that meritocracy is propaganda for plutocrats. It's a way of saying that... Very nicely put, Adrian. Very nicely uh, put. Our current inegalitarian <laughs> society is, is just because it's rooted in individual differences and abilities and you can't do anything about it. And what I really tried to do in this book is to locate the meritocratic ideal in the great radical tradition and to say that society used to be organized according to very different principles. It used to be static. It used to be a society in which you inherited your position, in which social mobility was disapproved of as being wrong and subversive, in which jobs were given as gifts through patronage or bought and sold, and that meritocracy comes along driven by the left as a way of saying, no, this is unjust. It denies people opportunities. We must organize society in such a way that uh, people 
wherever they're born in society, but particularly if they're born in the bottom of society, are given the opportunities they need to express their talents, not just because that's good for society, not just because it's morally good, but because it sort of gives people a way of developing what's best in their natures, which is their talents. And I found, you know, the history both of meritocrats who'd argued the case for expanding opportunities, but also the, the, the stories of working class autodidacts born, you know, without opportunities, who'd seized upon the opportunities of, of workers' education associations, the opportunities of reading groups, and devoted their life to absorbing sort of intellectual culture. Extremely, extremely moving. And I find it, you know, when people like Nick Clegg and Cameron have this rather smug, complacent view of meritocracy. I think that's absolutely wrong. What meritocracy is is a challenge to people like Cameron or to people like Clegg, both of them, I think, public school educated. It's a plea for social justice. It's a profoundly subversive ideas. And I think the best way to deal with the current marriage between plutocracy and meritocracy, which I think is an extremely sinister one, is to try and squeeze out the plutocratic bit and re-emphasize the, the meritocratic bit. But it's, just, it's fundamentally a radical challenge to the status quo, not a celebration of the status quo. And there you have it, Adrian. This was, the, for me, the great value of the book is that if I had sat opposite you at a dinner party, maybe on the Northcote Road, who knows, and you had said, I'm a champion of meritocracy, I would have leapt across the table and said, well, I am totally opposed to it. And we would have had a big ding dong. But having read the book, we can look at the differences which exist between us, but recognize that actually, overall, we agree about a great deal more than we disagree about. The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World is a really fascinating book I can strongly recommend. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now... Thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.